Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm going to tell you something you already know, which is being a people leader has never been more important, but I also believe it's never been more difficult at the exact same time. If you just think about it, we have the demands from a younger workforce, we have lots of expectations of employees that you be the ideal perfect boss for them. The workload has never been larger, I don't think. People are being burned out, you as a leader and part of your team, the complexity that you're dealing with, the hybrid working situation, the quiet quitting, just to name a few, and all of those have really altered the landscape, both for leaders and for employees. So what I want to talk about today is what does the research say it really takes to succeed and win in this climate? So we're going to talk about the 10 truths that you need to master to be an effective people leader. And we're going to talk about what people really want from their manager. Um, I think if you understand the latter, then it's a whole lot easier to do the 10 truths. And then it's a whole lot easier to understand the skills that you need to acquire to be a better leader. So super excited to welcome my guest today, Kate Bravery. She's an organization organizational psychologist. I'll get that out correctly in a moment. And she draws from her time living in China and the UK during the pandemic and working with global firms on their talent strategies. She leads Mercer's insight and advisory agenda, and she works closely with on workforce trends, emerging people practices literally around the world. She's partnered with the World Economic Forum to help CHROs innovate and respond to the future of the work agenda. She has a brand new book that we're talking about today, Work Different, 10 Truths for Winning in the People Age. And I will also say she publishes an annual global report on people trends that I highly recommend. So Kate, Welcome to the show. Wanda, it's wonderful to be here. Really excited to engage in a conversation today. Yes, me too. I am too. And I think, so what I get so excited about is I talk with tons of people, aspiring leaders, seasoned leaders, senior, senior, senior leaders. And I think people don't really understand what's being expected of them. So I know that's not why you wrote the book necessarily, but I think that's really an exciting outcome of what you've done. But I want to start with something that you chose. You say, work a different 10 truths for winning in the people age. Why that title and why that title now? And why not what everybody else is saying, the digital age? Well, firstly, I'm glad we are talking about the people age rather than the digital age, because I find the people age way more inspiring. <laughs> but you shared at the beginning there just some of the challenges of um, thriving today and being a people leader. But also if we step back and think about the business climate, I and mean, businesses have never been more competitive, the world's never been less predictable, talent's never been more in demand. It's really tough to get you know the top talent to attract them, retain them, and also Talent has never had more choices about work. I think one of the things we saw during the pandemic is people took that pause to think about, is this job really working for me in my life? And, and where do I want to be three or five years from now? So we actually grew our voice during those pandemic years. And of course, the chat GPTs of the world are also forcing us to, to really think about what is the unique contribution 
that people bring to the work equation. So for us, those factors are converging together to herald in what I think is one of the most exciting ages we've ever lived through, which is truly the people age, because it's our people that give us the lift, not our tech. And if we've got a workforce which is distracted, depleted, disengaged, that's not a thriving workforce. And you you mentioned earlier about the Global Talent Trend Study, and, and the research actually comes out end of February. But the good news for 2024 is executives believe that they actually have increased customer demand this year. Fantastic. But then when we ask them, what's going to stop you delivering on that? The number one reason is our talent. Either we don't have enough of the talent we need to capitalize on that customer demand, or we don't have enough agility in our talent models to pivot. And that doesn't surprise me because our talent models have been set for a completely different era. And in an era where we've got trends converging, we've got risks that we hadn't even anticipated or weren't talking about a few years ago, we need our people to be our eyes and ears. The people are the fuel of our organization. And I think particularly generative AI is only going to amplify the intelligence of our humans. It's not going to detect from it. So I do believe it's a people age. The only other thing we talk about in the book is um, we also have a role in ushering in that people age to make sure that our people plans and our people practices are in service of people. So as we add in AI and look at that um, digital dividends, we need to flow it back to workers. We need to make sure that our workers stay employable, stay thriving, have enough health and wealth to retire. And that, I think, can go two ways. And we've got a responsibility there. Right. Boy, there's a lot in that one that I want to pick up on. I mean, people, you know, most every company will say people are a strategic advantage. That That's the mantra that we've been saying for years and years. But it's what's interesting is we treat people as an output engine, not as a person. I think this is new, kind of just before the pandemic and certainly escalated in the pandemic, that it now matters that I'm treated like a human, a whole human being, not just somebody who produces for you. And that puts a whole other burden on a leader or a manager to get to know the human being. Um, Mm -hmm. Something, you know, just hasn't happened. So I think for most leaders and managers out there, they say, well, that's not how I was brought up and get over it. That's not how it's going to happen. But as you said, the power is back in the employee's hands, at least for the coming couple of years. And so uh, if managers, you're going to keep your talent, I think you got to change the game. Do you disagree with anything I've said there? No. I mean, gosh, talk about mentioning a lot of points that we could unpack for another two-hour call. Um, I agree with every point that you've mentioned there. And, you know, one of the things I recognize during those just coming out of those pandemic years where it got really tough work-wise. You know, we had the old ways of working and new ways of working crashing in and everyone's working crazy hours, um, spending all our time on Zoom or Teams. And what I realized is no one wants to work for you. Nobody wants to work for you. They want you to work with them. It sounds subtle, but it's a fundamental mindset shift. And I was, I mean, I have a global team through the pandemic and I do now around the world everywhere. You know, to your point, people don't want to produce for you, which was your language. They don't. They're going to get their satisfaction for feeling that they're contributing to a worthwhile mission and a cause and that they're part of the team. And particularly the Gen Xs coming in, they want a very different manager and employee relationship than we've seen before. And you're right, if managers aren't willing 
um, to listen more, underscore, and pivot, pivot again, they're going to be left behind because people will choose not to contribute to your team and to your firm. Right. I was um, just working with a company, one of my clients, that is a partnership-driven business, not mm. unlike yours, a different kind of client, I might add. But um, we're, we're really talking about do people want you on their team? And do you do they want to work with you? Now, we say that about the younger talent, but it's just as applicable looking at a leader, at somebody they're going to promote to partner, is how much do people want to work with you? Are they clamoring to do that or are they kind of dreading doing that? So that work with, I think, is a really interesting and I've been, as I've been thinking in this last week about what it takes to make brilliant leadership and what I would advise a 35-year-old to do to be brilliant, I would say, do people trust you and do they want to be on your team? Well, you know, we haven't released a study yet. And the Global Talent Trends has 12,500 data points across 17 markets, 16 industries. And we look at executives, HR and employees' views. We also do a lot of principal component analysis looking at the employee data. And the one thing that's had an outsized impact this year on whether people want to stay with the organization, stay on the team, feel they're thriving, not at risk of burnout, is trust. Trust has, and I've been doing this study right since it started in 2016, trust has never had such a huge impact. So you're absolutely right. How much your employees trust that you'll do the right thing by them, that you have their back, Trust that they can say to you, that's an unreasonable request, you know, and that psychological safety has become much more important than it was just a few years ago. And if we can't build trust, and I think, tr I mean, the Global Risk Report has just come out this this day, and I think the, the number one near-term risk is about disinformation. <laughs> so I think trust in all guises. Do I trust that you um, want to keep me employable? Do I trust that you're going to train me for my job if AI fundamentally changes it? Do I trust that you'll do your best to keep me employed even if my job evaporates? All of that has really peaked this year. Um, and it's been fascinating just to have a look at What's what's driving and also what's detracting from trust? Yeah, oh, that that's okay, Kate. Not only is that another two, that's another two hours. We got two hours <laughs> on the first part. We got a two hour on this. I think we've got a week long session talking about this one. All right, I'm going to pivot for us and get off of our belief. That's interesting, though. That trust. Certainly, everybody I'm speaking to is using the word trust more often than ever. Now, I would wish that we'd unpack what we mean by trust, what are the behaviors that are driving trust, some of what you just did, that doing the right thing for me as an employee, that you have my back as an employee, that you'll I can say back to you, it's not a reasonable request. We can negotiate that to way that you're going to train me and keep me fit for employment, even if the particular work I'm doing kind of goes away. All right, let's dig in to the book, um, The Ten Truths, all right? I don't want to spend the whole time going through every single one of the Ten Truths, but I want to hit a couple of them. The first one you talk about, people are contributors, not employees. And I know you think that that was the one that was the most surprising. So tell me, what do you mean, people are contributors, not employees? Well, I think it goes back to the conversation we were just having. People don't want to work for their employees anymore. They want to contribute to the purpose, the mission. They don't want to 
do their time and then get kind of the perks and the opportunities that come with doing the time, which is very much the era that you and I grew up. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to be valued for their contribution on day one. They want unfettered access to information, none of that sort of asynchronous information that used to lead to the command and control that we saw in the past. They also don't want to bend their life around the way the job works. Their views are very much... If you, if I'm going to bring my best self to work, I want to have some flexibility to make sure that I can focus on all aspects of my life, not just working those fifty or sixty-hour weeks. Um, in the in the book, we share a lot of case studies of organisations that I think have have really started to look at how much do the lifestyle contract impact where people want to work and who they want to work for. I think in the in the book, there's a case study from Citibank that said, look, we're really struggling to hire young analysts in New York and the UK. So they set up an office in Malaga and they were able to hire people in Malaga. At a, at, I think it was about half um, the starting salary that they would in the UK and New York, but still working on those hours remotely. But what was interesting when they went back to them and asked them about it, it wasn't the fact that they were in a lovely sunny area, which we all love, it was because they guaranteed them they wouldn't have to work weekends or extraordinary hours. And I think that tells you a little bit about how coming out of these pandemic areas, our mindsets have shifted. You know, Gen Ys, Gen Xs, you know, Gen Xs in particular have seen their parents live through this time, the uncertainty of work, the trade-offs that um, certainly Gen Xs have made. And many of them are saying there's got to be a better way. And I think the organizations that can capture their hearts and minds are getting it right. We talk a lot about Novartis, which has got an unbossed culture. And then they encourage everyone to self-drive their career and be curious and be essentially unbossed. This is very different to the work environment that, that we were used to. And many of our now Gen Y leaders um, have had role modeled before. And I think if we don't get that connection right, particularly when we're managing across digital borders, cultural borders, um, geographic borders, all of those are going to feed into just a new way of partnering, as you said. So partnering, but I like the word of the emphasis on contribution. As an employee, the employee wants to know that they're making a contribution to something that matters. So to the purpose, to the mission, to the ultimate goal, and they want to contribute from the beginning, not do a bunch of work that I can't see how it contributes. I might argue if it doesn't contribute, then you should get rid of the work, period. But maybe that is more clarity in how the contribution matters and why it matters as well. I mean, so any number of those things. But seeing themselves as contributors from the moment they walk in the door versus I'm here as an employee to do the job you ask me to do. That is a very different framework. It's absolutely a different conversation that I think managers, you know, are being asked to be part of. And on the one hand, it's incredibly exciting because regardless of tenure, experience, you know, you are equals in that partnership. And I think the large language models that are now coming into our businesses are going to put that on steroids because that's going to allow us to take a risk on non-traditional talent. That's going to allow us to move people mid-career 
from one career track to a completely different area because they've got the support of the large language model. And I think this is really exciting. It also will allow us to have older workers also maybe step back and work in new ways. So getting used to people dipping in and out of work with different levels of contribution and different levels of experience is our new reality. And we have a role as managers to make sure that we have some shared values, both the AI and our people, right, and right. we give them context. But they're also going to be inspired to be on our team, not just because we're great coaches, but also because we bring something to the equation as well. And I think knowing when we lean into our expertise <laughs> and our experience and our understanding of business context and knowing when to lean into coaching is something many leaders are still grappling with. But it's going to become even more critical as we usher in more human and machine teaming. Uh, well, I, I have to do a plug on that one because you know I think that that's the case, is that it's so easy to let your contribution as a manager or leader be your content knowledge, your expertise, your experience, your track record, and let that be your reputation. And then your training becomes your um, explanation the gift of that knowledge to your employees. And that's what you think about. I I know and let me teach you even in the most possible, most human, most wonderful way, but it's around content knowledge. The challenge though is because we can't get that up. That is a reality that needs to happen. The challenge though is how do you balance that sitting side by side with being something that's a coach that's coaching a person to discover as opposed to a coach, as in, let me tell you how. So mm -hmm. those two worlds, like we don't even have good language for what it means to be this kind of a new coach and to keep those two in the right balance is... Um, and then you're going to add the complexity of a broader talent ecosystem. So what do we, you know, what jobs do we reconfigure and decide what tasks go to the machine versus what tasks go to our people? Then we've got conversations about when do we want to bring an outside exit expert to fix a challenge today, which could have been a rich learning opportunity for someone on our team. So I do think there's some really interesting nuances come in, not just as we embrace technology, but also as we embrace new work models. You've got consultants, contractors, individual contributors, you know, young people who are learning all together. And I'm not sure we're helping our managers make that pivot as much as we could be. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're not talking about it as effectively as you need to be. All right, now i got to be the cynic for a moment. I yeah. can imagine a whole bunch of people I know listening to this podcast on a regular basis go, yeah, 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 all that's nice in theory. Thank you very much. I still have an astronomical amount of work to get done, and I need somebody to just dig in and do the work that needs to be done. Uh, 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 what's your speech to them about how they should be thinking? Well, Two things. One, I think when you read the book, it does have quite a commercial angle. Um, yes, there's a lot of leadership tips for individuals and, and leaders of people, but it does start on the premise that if we want to usher in more people sustainability and we want to engage in environmental sustainability, we need to make sure that it's affordable. We need to build it into our P&Ls and that. So there's a, a quite a hard edge to the book about what do you pragmatically need to get done? And I do believe there's a conversation that maybe has been missing in the years immediately post the pandemic, where it swung very much to the employee about what is the work that needs to get done and what is the best way to get it done. And I think sometimes we're shy about 
being really direct when we're making near-term decisions, maybe at the expense of other people's learning. And engaging in that conversation is critical because, as you and I have spoke about before, this year, trust is at a premium. And a big part of that trust is whether people think the world of work is fair. And that fairness comes from, you know, pay equity, opportunity equity, health equity. And that opportunity equity one is something we haven't always focused on. So I think it's absolutely fine to be saying, you know, we've got to get this out of the door by the end of the week. As long as you're transparent about we are making a decision, which maybe is robbing a learning opportunity from someone else. I think the challenge is when it's not conscious and we're always going to our favorites and we're hoarding talent and we're stifling other people's opportunities to move around and thrive. That's where I think we we end up doing our people a misservice when we make those near-term, got to get this done today decisions. Saying that, coming out of the pandemic, we have been over-indexing on the urgent and the now. We see that in the data from the executives, you know, currency concerns, flexible working, a lot of those have absolutely dominated, whereas some of the more longer term risks and opportunities related to moving towards net zero or even cyber resilience have sort of dropped down the list of priorities. And and I think if we want a more sustainable work environment, we need to get the balance right between the urgent and the fix and what is right for the long-term sustainability of our business societies and our people. Right. I know burnout is one of your themes and we're going to come to that, but certainly what I'm seeing is the biggest contributor of burnout is both the layers of checks and balances, bureaucracy, risk management that have been added to work so that it's impossible to get something finished. And that that's one piece. But the second piece is this urgent driving of right now, right now, right now, right now, that you it, that's overwhelming. We just can't keep that sustained. So I totally agree with you. I want to come back to fairness too. While we're on this notion of leaders and what they can do and how they say and trust both ways, employee to leader, leader to employee, um, one of the other themes in your 10 truths is this notion of trust and accountability. And I've never heard more of the word accountability used than I have in the last six months. So what do you what have you uncovered there about this truth of trust and accountability? Yeah, so I think the truth in the book is um trust and accountability is a team sport. And that's coming out of immediately post-pandemic. Trust in organizations and trust in leaders was the highest I'd ever seen it. You know, employees and their managers have come through this incredible unifying experience where people's views about how the world of work could change, let's take this opportunity to restart and reimagine, was really high. They trusted that their leader would do the right thing by them, by society, um, by the environment, was, you know, at an all-time high. A couple of years on, and that trust is eroding by 15 to 20 percentage points across the board. And, you know, so we asked some questions this year about what's eroding trust in your organization? And the top things that came up from employees is um, flip-flopping on promises, particularly around flexible working. I think we've, we've been learning as we go. And that's why setting up a climate where you can keep renegotiating around pay, around career, around flexible working, because it's not static. And I think those organizations that were very clear on the static ended up having to change. So that, so that came up. The other one was the frequent organizational changes. <laughs> and I think we're going to see more of them. Um, I think about um, most executives 
believe, well, I think 30% of executives believe that they'll be doing quite a lot of right-sizing this year. Um, and I have a, a lot of views on that because in the same breath, they say we don't have enough talent to meet demand. There's got to be a better way. Yeah. And we talk about some of the companies that I think are thinking much more creatively about uh, what can be fixed roles, flex roles, and and flow roles. They're more thinking more creatively about talent marketplaces and moving from jobs to skills and, and things like that to to really bend that supply curve. But I, I think it is a bit worrying when we when we lose some of our loyal talent and then we're rapidly trying to um, upskill new talent when the market economy changes. Um, but the other thing that they said was, I feel I'm treated unfairly. What arose my trust is I don't feel that fair decisions are being made. And, and you and I both know we've just had two years of a lot of strike action. I mean, I think mm -hmm. 2023 and 2022 are going to be remembered as the years of strikes. I mean, I'm, I'm in the UK at the moment. We've just had the longest strike of doctors since records begun. And people are not getting vital cancel treatment as a result of that. I know that in the US, you've just come off the, the, the writer's strikes, which I think was again about AI and contingent working. So I think fair pay, fair wages, um, fair treatment of people, living wage is very much in the um, in the in the psyche of employees today, and they're looking to see well, what is my organisation doing about it. What are their promises beyond just profitability? Um, have they set some good work standards that actually benefit society and, and benefit me specifically? The other big driver we saw is psychological safety. Um, so if they work for a leader who doesn't come across as a know-it-all but comes across as a learn-it-all, somebody who encourages exper experimentation, someone who they feel that they can make a mistake and still be a, a, you know, a valid and respected team member. That came up very high. And the link to accountability is we also saw coming through the data this year a challenge with over-empowerment. You know, in years gone by, employees were just saying, I want more empowerment. I want more opportunities to do things on my own. I want less governance. Actually, we are no longer hearing that. People are saying, I'm okay on empowerment. <laughs> I've, you know, I've got a lot of responsibility and opportunity. A lot of that we've got right. Um, but what they are saying is, as we flatten the organizational structures, I feel like I'm performance managing my peers. And so as we've gone to these flatter structures and the more partnership models, we need to make sure that everybody has transparency on team objectives, goals, how you're going to govern as a team. Because most leaders now have a very different job to their direct reports. And they aren't the sole custodian as to whether they're successful. In fact, I wonder, I was just looking yesterday, and we asked the question, what keeps you where you are today? Like, why do you stay with your current organization? 20 items. And do you know what's 20 out of 20? No. My manager. My manager. And I have seen this trend over the last five years that every year the influence of the manager and whether people stay or go has dropped. You know, there was that old adage, people don't leave companies, they leave managers. I'm not sure that's still true anymore. Ah. You know, the quality of team accountability, the quality of project management, the climate of psychological safety, how much I respect my peers and what they bring to the equation seems to be having even more of an impact as well as how easy it is to collaborate digitally. And that's a shift. Wow. And that's why I think trust and accountability has taken on a really different hue and you need them together to have a thriving workforce. Well, 
I don't think you can get accountability without trust because otherwise it feels like it's a got you culture, meaning I'm holding you accountable and I'm waiting for you to make a mistake and then I'm going to tag you. And in which case that destroys trust, as you've already said, because I can't make a mistake in that kind of culture. So I think you can't get one without the other. And I think in some ways the accountability can't even start until you are crystal clear on the common understanding of the goal, the common understanding of the timeline, an ability to work through whatever conflicts or issues might come up, and that kind of two-way dialogue. I mean, you've been calling it um, psychological safety, but if I can't go to the senior leader and say, I'm struggling because X, and have that conversation and come with some resolution on what to do, then all the project work we're doing is just frustrating. Frustrating. So, and I think that's what people are seeing. Yeah. And also, you know, managers don't want to be spending all their time in the performance management formal feedback process. Mm -hmm. If we do a better job up front in setting expectations, showing what good performance looks like and what what, what less strong performance looks like, more ways of working with team members or inter-team members, you know, we're going to end up being in a much more productive position with our employees and maintaining that personal relationship that we all like to have. Yeah. But back to what we were saying at the beginning about if people risk is business risk this day, and if we've got more risks intersecting, we need people to be flagging where we've got cyber risk exposure, AI exposure, unethical use. We're going to need that more than ever because we are entering a world where there are uncharted risks that none of us have ever experienced. And so it's a win-win, not just in performance managing the team, but without that, we could could bring a team to its knees. Right, bring an organization to its knees in ways none of us quite anticipated. All right, let's go to my third favorite truth, which is uh, my words, not your words. Hybrid is here to say. So (laughs) totally agree. (laughs) So whether I like it, don't like it, think it's effective, ineffective, pros and cons, it's just here. So in your experience, what really makes hybrid working work? So what have you learned in the research? Well, we always ground it by how many people have actually moved towards more flexible working and how many people have retracted from that. And what's interesting to see is about 35% of companies in the last year have moved towards more flexible ways of working with the three days on site, two days not on site being being the general norm that we're beginning to see emerge. So and I think that's really positive and healthy. There's a 10% of companies that have moved away and have said we want to have much higher on-site um, participation than we've seen in the past. And we then, for those that said they were moving towards more flexible working, we said, why? What's the driver for that? And what have you learned over the last year? And for those that have contracted, we asked that too. What was fascinating, for those that have gone towards more flexible working, we've got a few years under our belt now of experiencing it. The number one reason was productivity. Both employees and HR believe that it actually drives up productivity. And that's interesting because we've had just so many debates with the return to office discussions. Does it really lead to productivity or was that just a a spike because we're all watching? And I think the jury is saying, actually, Human beings can be more productive when they are enabled to have a working arrangement which works for them. Um, The other um, reasons was engagement. They've said it's really impacted their ability to attract top talent, which I think is really exciting. And employees 
So it's actually enabled them to collaborate with a broader range of people, which again, I think is a little bit of a surprise coming out of this period. It's definitely forced us all to use digital tools, I think, a lot quicker than we would have if we didn't have that experience of, of going sort of fully remote during the pandemic years. Those that have moved away from it, um, the reasons have been very much around belonging, particularly of young hires. And I think there's some truth in that. What they found was that um, people that were hired fully remote in maybe their first or second job didn't get as connected to the company as people who had tenure. They hadn't built up their social credit. They hadn't built up their networks. And I think many organizations were challenged to go, how can we ensure that the right budding and the right networking happens when it's fully remote? And so by moving back to more on-site participation, maybe for the first six months that people are joining the organization, they're seeing great benefits for that. The other reasons were some reasons around cybersecurity risk. So some of like, you know, we haven't always quite got the technology right. And also with increased privacy laws, um, we need to have a look at that. So I think we're still very much in that transition of if we are going to have people who are in hybrid work arrangements, what's the infrastructure we need for it physically and technologically, but also what is the culture in terms of being risk aware and being aware of, you know, being open to those changes. We still see that women and um, people of color gravitate more to working from home. And my big concern there is we've really got to watch presenteeism. Now, obviously, that's different in different parts of the world. But if you've got more female workers opting for remote or hybrid arrangements, we've got to be careful that we don't go into the workplace and all the leaders that we see are male. <laughs> right. Um, right. We also know that um, when we asked women, this was the year before, you know, how much do you believe that the skills that you have today could help you do a job you've never done in the future? And we see a big difference between men and women on that. And as we start to rely more on technology to democratize opportunities, to match people to jobs, um, we need to be careful that women don't hold back on some of that. And I think if you haven't got some of that exposure that you get in the workplace, that can add to how confident or less confident we feel to try something we've never done. Right. It's so easy in the hybrid the remote, specifically, largely remote, to focus on the task. I've got a task to do. Let me do my task. The task is in my area of expertise, and I can be incredibly productive, highly efficient, highly valued, but it doesn't get you to take those kind of risks, um, but, you know, like presentations or career risks or stepping outside of the comfort zone in the same way. And that's cool if you want to stay in the box that you're currently in. But if you're looking to escalate your impact or elevate your leadership, you're going to have to be taking more risks. And that is harder when you're not in a cohort group that's doing the same thing and you're seeing and hearing it in day in and day out. So I couldn't agree Absolutely. with you more. There's a risk there. Yeah. And I, I, I love the way you've put that because I think we have to be careful that we have um, some segments of our population that are very much head down, let's get the work that I need to get done, and I'm going to be recognized for that. And if I work really hard, longer hours and harder, I'm going to get that recognition. And I think that's probably the old world, and I'm not sure it was ever true. And so there is a, an education piece around 
we've got to take more responsibility for our careers in this hybrid work and managers need to encourage their their workforce to do that but also i think the pivot towards more skills based organizations where we have a language of skills can actually help with that i also think ai will um hopefully overcome some of those biases eventually. I hope so. I hope so. We'll we'll hope for all those biases. But I want to put this back in solidly in the employee's hands. That's not to leave the organization and the manager off the hook. But for managers, have these conversations with your employees, particularly if they're fully remote. They don't necessarily know what other people are doing to manage their careers because you don't see it. And the chit-chat isn't happening virtually the way it was happening when we were in the elevator together or in the lunchroom together or wherever. Um, so you just you know, like as your manager, watch out for that and make sure you're highlighting things that people need to be doing and how they need to do it. Okay. Yeah, I, I would, can I just add on that? I do think that, you know, managers by definition have a wonderful network. And being able to bring new hires or direct reports into that network, I think is one of the most valuable things they can do in this current world. Because many of us learn by sitting next to Nelly, a very old phrase. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we, you know, we went out on the road meeting customers. Um, you know, unless that is put into the onboarding and the training by design, it doesn't happen. Now I'm seeing some great innovations with people using VR glasses on that. I'm seeing some, you know, great opportunities where people um, have a virtual um, office environment that's always on so they can have that chit chat. But I'm not sure any of them are, are quite emulating that full sensory experience you and I probably had. Right. And we may not get back to that. I'm going to recognize that, but we've got to substitute the knowledge and the content and the exposure, if you will. We have to bring that in as well. All right, let's shift. I want to talk about um, something that I know is on everybody's mind, which is this burnout thing. We mentioned it at the very beginning. I never thought that I would need to take as deep of a dive into the stress management, sleep management what is producing regeneration renewal that avoids burnout? How do we build thriving? I just never believed as a coach that would be where I had to spend a bunch of time. And I have to tell you, it I've had to become more of an expert in it. It's so prevalent. So what are you finding is the truth about burnout? Well, wonder I I'm not surprised because I'm almost aghast at how we've got ourselves into this state. So in the report that's coming out end of February, we're going to report that 82% of the workforce feel at risk of burnout in the, in the next 12 months. That's staggering. It was 81% a couple of years ago when we came off that sort of pandemic period and we had old ways of working and new ways of working. I got that. Before that, it was in the 50s and 60s. Um, but we're going in the wrong direction. And so clearly we've not got it right. And one of the big changes in what is driving people's sense of burnout this year, yes, exhaustion is there. It's the number two one. But the big one is financial concerns. People mm. report spending seven or eight hours a month worried about how they're just going to make their, make ends meet by the end of the month. And so to your point about your coaching people on a wide range of topics such as stress and work-life balance and general health, these broader topics that really weren't part of the management purview before, we also got to think about not just their mental well-being, health well-being, but also financial well-being. 
And we did some really interesting regression analysis and found that those organizations that have been very active in financial education and financial security measures actually have less people that are feeling they're at risk of burnout because of the cost of living crisis. It has just become such a concern. And even though I think the economy is showing some really positive indicators for the year ahead, um, confidence in the job market, certainly at the end of last year, was at an all-time low. And so I think job insecurity, the advent of AI, financial concerns, and then being trapped in this exhausting amount of hours just came through really, really strong this year. And I do think some companies have been quite aggressive in looking at how can we change this equation. So in the book, we talk about the need to look at energy levels as a finite resource and how do we manage that finite resource in the same way we would manage our financial resources. And there's been, I think, some fantastic technology that's come in to say, when you're doing your strategic workforce planning, don't just look at customer demand hitting your people. Look at those internal transformation projects that hit them. You know, create a climate where it's one in, one out. I mean, we're at the beginning of the year where we have that chance to have those honest conversations around prioritization. But you and I both know by the time we get to the end of Q1, five or six internal projects have all come on. Right. And right. us and our teams have different experience in feeling confident to say no. Yeah. And and yeah. that's how we get to the end of the year and people feel absolutely wrung out. And within Mercer, we also have a health and health and health and benefits business. And we've started to see long-term sick leave escalate. We've started to see incidents of non-communicable diseases go up and impacting health premiums. So we all benefit if we can keep our people healthy and thriving. But I'm not sure we have the strategies that we need to effectively manage our time in this new hybrid way of working and acceleration that we see with digitization. Yeah. The, um, I can imagine managers are saying, uh, uh, you know, what do you want me to do about this? Like, I can't help educate my team on finance. I can't give them the money they might necessarily like to make it more secure. Uh, managers are also dealing with the fi- their own financial worries, um, mortgage rates, interest rates, and a whole bunch of stuff that's driving that one. I can imagine, though, managers being aware whether somebody is stressed about money or not. Mm-hmm. that awareness then might help push for, are there internal resources that I can tap that help them get on, char- in, on top of things? Um, certainly, I think that's a piece of the conversation that could happen. This whole yeah. issue of exhausting hours, though, I think you said, so first off, I think it's not just the hours. It's the mental strain of those hours. And I think you put it really, really well of recognizing the energy levels, the additional things that are added on. And if you think about what gets added on in a year, we're going to add two or three major change transformation projects that'll have 15 each streams of work that are going to impact every employee in some capacity. I'm probably going to have a new manager sometime in the course of a year, maybe two. That means I have to get you know, spend time with them, get to know them, get to know my work, et cetera, et cetera. All of those extra burdens on and drains on energy, we don't even stop to think about. We just think, oh, you'll take it in stride. There's no capacity left. 
And it is about bandwidth. It's not just about the the, the fixed hours. Um, when we look at the different populations in global talent trends, you know, frontline workers are the ones that are the least thriving. And they're the ones that um, feel that stress because they're upfront and personal with people. They might be in the caring profession. They might be in a call center. Um, you know, that is very taxing and draining. If we look at some of the new organizational structures, I mean, I've loved watching the move, you know, to more matrixed and more integrated and more networked communities. If they aren't well-designed, people end up with two or three different jobs. And you talked about the bureaucracy that that can follow with that. That's incredibly taxing, but it's unquantifiable. We've also gone into businesses and had a look at um, if engagement results show that we've got an unhealthy work culture. Um, there's a lot you can do around um, the messages that you send and benefits and meditation, thing, but do they really move the needle? What you might actually need to do is actually do some work design. Where is value being created? Mm -hmm. Let's look at the tasks. Let's reconfigure those tasks to make those jobs more enjoyable, to take away some of the administrative burden, particularly, let's say, for nurses, where we maybe haven't got enough nurses to do the jobs anyway. And I think good work design pays dividends because jobs often expand with us. And that's one of the challenges. I also think that's why we start to see this peak and trough where we get these big reductions in force, where we've got out of kilter with the, the level of resources or the type of resources we need. And that's not really sustainable for our, our people or our society. So I would love to see, um, a, a, you know, more creativity in how we keep our loyal workers, but pivot them into new areas and more creativity on rewards. Because you were saying Managers might feel they, they haven't got an opportunity to make changes there. But one in three people said, I would trade a pay rise this year to work less hours. I would pay pay rise this year for better benefits for my family members, my older parents. So I do think there's ways that we could get a lot more creative about what really helps people feel that they're thriving and helps them feel that they've got wealth, even if it's not increasing their pay. Right. I think we I think we use pay when none of the other stuff is in place. When I'm not being valued, my time isn't being used well, uh, you're exhausting my energy levels, you're screwing up the rest of my life, I don't feel like I'm making a contribution. Every one of those bumps up, then pay me more because the you and it's a lot more. It's not just a little bit, a lot more to take off that sense of I'm mm. not being treated fairly. It's where we come You are back. spot on. It's that compensation for, I don't feel I am valued for the contribution that I'm making. And fairness this year. So we asked people, people who are thinking of leaving in the next six months, why are they leaving? Um, the What has shot right into the number two position is fairness of pay. Not the competitive pay. That's down at five or six. It's fairness of pay. There is an acute... Um, focus this year on pay equity. And that makes sense. We've got a cost of living crisis. We've got pay transparency laws coming in. You, you can you can ask ChatGPT, what should I be paid for this job? Um, if we aren't comfortable having conversations around the pay topic and equity of opportunity, and if we're not looking at who does get those those opportunities and who is promoted, and we don't have an explanation for that, I think we really are going to start to see people asking for pay as compensation for the unfairness issue. Right. The problem is I don't think the pay lasts. 
So I think it's a momentary fix. And then I need more <laughs> to come because well, I'm still being treated <laughs> inappropriately or not being valued or whatever. And so, okay, that was a good bit. But next year, I need more. Next six months, I need more. So I don't think it gets I agree with you. Um, We have a whole chapter on it doesn't pay to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think people do think the grass is really greener. And actually, we talk a lot about what is the personal balance sheet about whether you stay or whether you go. And, you, and you're right. The pay is often the tipping point. And it's also the easy thing when, you, when you've when you got that exit interview. But we've it's not yeah. the driver. <laughs> it's not the driver. Yeah. yeah, we've known that for ages. But I'm glad to hear that you're documenting at a much more broader scale. All right. We've talked about a lot of different issues, and we've only touched five or so of the th- of the ten Pull back from that, Kate, and for the average manager, not the HR professional, but the average manager in an average corporation at a mid-level, what are your top three or four things you would tell them to do in 2024 right now to make your team happier working with you? Look, I'm probably going to be clouded by the conversation that we've had today because for each of these 10 truths in the book, we have recommendations for managers coming out of them. But given where we are at the beginning of the year, I think the beginning of the year is to start afresh. We're in the people age, so listen to your people. We've got unprecedented ways to be listening to our people directly by having the conversation around what is the one thing you want to be different this year? What is the one thing that I can I can help you do differently? Uh, and what do you expect of me of your leader? You know, those are maybe the conversations that in years gone by would be the other way around. I think kicking off the year by really understanding their expectations of of you and what they want to see different and being a partner on that, you know, is a great starting point. Secondly, be aware of some of those hidden biases that you've got. You know, are you always tapping your favorites? You know, who does get those choice opportunities? If you are managing in a hybrid environment, um, how are you making sure that the, those people who might be more introverted or come from a culture where they don't speak up are being included? What it, you know? What are some of the signals you're sending, intentionally or unintentionally? I think that's really important. You know, if you have a large team, look at your internal labor flow. You know who you know who comes in, who goes out at each level in the organization, and who gets promoted. Look at it by gender. Look at it by generation, and it's often very revealing for where there are systemic biases. And then the third one is we're at the beginning of the year. What a wonderful opportunity to do two things: get those team goals that are really transparent. If you're the only person working on the leadership agenda, it's going to be a hard lift this year. You know, how can you make a leader of all of your direct reports and get some of that peer-to-peer coaching around performance? Because that's going to really stand you in good stead um, this year. And part of that might be talking about ways of working. What does good look like for us as a team? What are some of the things that we want to do less of as a team? What do we want our brand to be with the other teams we interact with within our business or outside our business? So those are the three I would do. You know, have that early conversation and listen to your people. Know your own biases and and focus on on team. You know, that trust and accountability at a team level, I think, can, can really give you a bit of relief this year. Um, that is a lovely starting point. And I just, I love your three questions and listening to your people. I want to come back to those because I think they're really powerful. One is, what is the one thing you want to be different this year to the employee? One is, how can I help you do something differently? One thing, 
by the way, and what's the one thing I can do to help as a leader? I just, and I love the putting the one thing label in that because it keeps from getting a laundry list. It gets focused Mm -hmm. on sort of where the priorities and, you know, take note and work on it. There was a great book on that, I think called The Power of One. And uh, it really forced you to think about if you only did one thing, what is the one thing that will have the biggest impact? And as a leader, it's often doing it with others because you get that magnifying impact as opposed to the one head down thing that gives you that tick box satisfaction. (laughs) Okay, Kate, two minutes left. I have one (laughs) last question for you. And it's largely because you've worked in such different um, countries, China, the UK, the EU, and you work with clients literally around the world. The Global Trends Report is global. The book is global stories. Are we seeing an increase in cultural differences or a decrease in cultural differences, particularly when we think think about employees? You know, it's interesting because on the one hand, we've actually started to see more convergence over the last five years than we have in the past. When I started Global Talent Trends in 2016 and 2017, the differences by generation and the differences by country were very stark. As we've had a much more con- connected experience over the last few years, and we've gone through this life-altering pandemic event, I've seen more convergence in views and attitudes. So when we ask people, you know, what helps you thrive day-to-day in your work, and we say thriving in terms of health, wealth, and career, um, for the first time ever, the top three are the same across all 17 markets and across all generations. The first one... I want to work for an organization with a purpose I'm proud of. That purpose has never been the number one, but I think it's really risen up. It actually matters whether I think my organization is relatable, whether I think my organization is is doing the things that sit well with my values. And I think that's a, a collective influence on us. The second one is feeling a sense of belonging. Between mm-hmm. we talk a lot about inclusion and you know feeling that this is where I can do my best work, where I feel like I'm valued. And the last one is, is that reward one we've been chatting on about being uh, valued for my contributions. And then most markets have um, fun at work afterwards. Um, this is really fascinating to see that. But of course, what that looks like on the ground is very different by country. So, you know, working for an organization with a purpose I'm proud of, if I think about the companies, let's say in Europe, that have been very advanced on their ESG agenda, they've been focusing on how do I get a proportion of everyone's job working towards our sustainability? Because that's changed the mindset of what employees expect. Right. If I think about in the US, um, uh, the great strides you've made since George Floyd on diversity, you know, if I look up and I see an executive team and no one looks like me, that's going to get talked about in social media. So an organization I'm proud of probably looks very different. different. You know, if you go across to Asia, an organization that I'm proud of might be more around some of those societal outreach um, you know, if you look at some of the companies that we partner in South Africa, living wage is really popular. Now, living wage, I think, in the US is becoming a lot more po- a lot more of a discussion point, particularly for the younger generation. But very few have it in their reward plans right. this year. Right. 
Kate, so, so much we more that we could talk about. So, so, so much more. Where do people find a copy of the Global Report? Um, so, uh, Global Talent Trends will be out at the end of uh, February. If you head to the Mercer.com site, you can uh, pre-register for um, the report. We've also got a number of external events we'll be doing. Um, so, you can listen to the one in your region that captures your interest. And the book uh, is already out. Uh, again, if you head to Mercer.com, you can find... Uh, work different 10 truths for winning in the people age uh, and all the places you can get it on the site <laughs> on the usual ones all right thank, and we'll be posting that in all of our social media as well all of those kate thanks for joining us today what a fabulous conversation and clearly could go on for hours more it's been a pleasure oh it's wonderful lovely to chat to you today <laughs> thank you and join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.